0: Today's episode of Tipping Pitches is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities like host red ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Alex, finding ads for your podcast is very hard, especially when you're a smaller scale podcaster like we are.
1: Yeah, definitely. What's great about Podcorn is that there's no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can just pop onto their website, browse all the opportunities that exist right uh, on the platform. You can set your own rates and you can collaborate with whatever brands interest you specifically. Super easy. It's just a scroll to find all of the different
0: campaigns that are available to you. You never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn is here to support you at every step. So click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Alex, you know I have to start the podcast out this week by playing some audio for the listeners. Are you ready? That's
1: better than asking me a question, That's which is what I you thought
0: you do. not have to answer any so. questions here. No questions for you. Just audio for the listeners.
2: Hi, Andrew, and thank you for having us. Um, Hamantra and I have uh, uh, joined together to uh, create Slam Corp, and we both are very excited to come together and, and put our superpowers together. I think there's a market that... Uh, we can go together and put some, um, put our skill sets to work. Uh, I know that I personally have tremendous deal flow. Amantra has a tremendous back record with Antara. And I think together, 1 plus 1 equals 5.
1: Okay, I got so much out of that.
0: I lied. I have a question. I lied. What does that company do? Alex Rodriguez, for those listeners who couldn't recognize The Voice, which means you're not a listener of this podcast at all. You're new. Welcome. Uh, went on a, a CNBC show called Squawk Box? Is that the name of the show or is that just a Chiron thing? Is that a segment name? I no, know. I
1: believe that is the name of the show. Squawk yeah,
0: Squawk Box. To say all of those elucidating words about his company Corp, which they are taking public. Alex, my question to you is, just based on those 29 seconds, what does that company do? What do they make? What service do they offer?
1: Well, the thing is, I think maybe what you're not getting is the ability of going together, and like what it actually means to bring togetherness to the world. Um, this is a Rod's version of a, a commune, basically. Mm. Mm. Uh, is is just you know let's let's all just get together and we've all got a lot of money and we're just kind of vibing. And we're, we're just gonna put we, our money sh- together
0: and make more money, yeah. you know? Money babies. <laughs> I thought when you said, like, they focus on togetherness, it was, like, the whole name of the company is, like, they put together concerts, you know, charity concerts, like Live Aid, you know? They're getting in the business of <laughs> putting together
1: concerts, um... You know dope. I would love that. That is absolutely much cooler than it just this just being an acquisition company, which is 100% what this is. Alex Rodriguez yeah. started Slam Corp, which is a a a special purpose acquisition company that is basically just designed to buy companies or have part ownership of companies and help them go public. And just basically Insert themselves into the process and try and make money off other companies, which so I they mean, wouldn't
0: let him do it in baseball, they wouldn't let him run right. seek it in baseball. So it's like, fine, I'll just seek rent other places. It's like I've been doing it since 2002 when yeah. I was accused by my former brother in law of racketeering. The squawk box, squawk box, squawk box, squawk box, yeah. squawk box. The W comes after the A in this Chiron. I don't know if that's a typo, I don't really know, however. The Chiron says, Slamcorp goes public. A-Rod's new blank check company. I generally don't think of a blank check company as a good thing. Not a lot of good can come out of just writing blank checks. <laughs> That's like what they do in, like, you know, The Godfather. Yeah. I, is it? Well, like, offering just a, a blank check to a company to get off the ground, it's like almost like you're going to require protection later.
1: I yeah, that's fair. So, so the way that I understand this, right, is that like this is a company that that literally just exists to funnel money into and out of other companies, and like everyone has a SPAC these days. Like every like Steph Curry has one, Jay Z, Jay Z has one, Serena Williams has, fucking Paul Ryan has one like paul ryan. i know w- real 2010 vibes out here wow if you had the bingo card
0: for paul ryan coming up in the first 10 minutes of the podcast you just hit and you are over the moon <laughs> good lord uh what's your assessment of alex Rodriguez's tremendous
1: deal flow capabilities oh my god that was my uh, that is that phrase i have tremendous deal flow
0: you have tremendous deal flow too when someone is like, describe your co-host. I'm like, he has tremendous deal flow. Right. First of all, tremendous hair flow, tremendous conversational flow. He's a flowy yeah,
1: guy. Flowy. I mean, I bought a bagel this morning. Bam. Deal. Deal flow. Deal made.
3: That was, great, that
1: was a great return on investment. I just want to put that out there. Yeah. What kind? What kind oh, of bagel? Ev- everything bagel. We had some hash browns on there, some Ooh. bacon, some hot hash sauce. browns on the bagel. Deal flow. Oh, yeah. Deal, Deal flow. flow. Deal flow. I don't even know what he said about the other guy. That skill that he said, I don't even know what that word is. I, I don't I don't remember what he said, but it sounds like the other guy is probably bringing the, the know-how, and Alex Rodriguez is bringing the name Alex Rodriguez. Yeah, he's bringing the company part of the company. <laughs> right.
0: Oh, I mean, we had to start with this. We had to start with this. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to waste too much time here, though, because we have a ton to get to. We have a conversation coming up with Ryan O'Hanlon, who is a former coworker of mine at The Ringer, who knows a ton about soccer, and we wanted to talk to him about youth development in soccer and how it sort of relates to how the United States develops youth baseball players. Um, So that conversation is coming up. We're going to talk about Kevin Mather, and we're going to do a couple of voicemails. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Faisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches, a podcast with tremendous, exorbitant deal flow. Uh, Alex, while we were recording last week in the process of us recording Kevin Mather was making a total ass of himself and the Seattle Mariners Uh, so we didn't get a chance to talk about it on last week's podcast but he brought up a myriad of things that are sort of in our wheelhouse, in our beat Um, some of them being service time manipulation, some of them being uh, unrealistic expectations for foreign players to learn English which is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast so Really quickly, I know it's been about a week since all of this was sort of dominating the baseball conversation, and I know that spring training is starting today, so I don't want to really live in the downer that is Kevin Mather and make everybody relive everything, but I figure we need to talk about this. So if you could give a brief cliff notes of everything that Kevin Mather tripped over last Sunday, that would be very helpful. Informative, I would say. Of course.
1: Yeah. No, that's why I'm here. Uh, cliff notes God. Uh Deal flow and cliff notes. That's what I traffic in. Um, That's what it says under your LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> um, So Kevin Mather is, was the Seattle Mariners president and CEO. And at the beginning of February, he uh, participated in a conversation at the uh, the Bellevue Breakfast Rotary Club. Now, as I understand it, um, a rotary club is just where rich people get together and talk. I, do you have a do you have a different understanding of it, or is it literally just wealthy people being like, let's chat about the wealth?
0: A, a rotary club is sort of like the prelude to slam corp. You know, it starts as a rotary club, and then you take it public, and suddenly it's slam corp. You have deal flow somewhere in between. I don't know. Right. Okay. Yeah, all of that's, this a stuff good, that's a good understanding. Yeah. All of this stuff is just rich people talking.
1: Just yes. People talking. So uh, Kevin Mather in pure rich person form sounded like a real rich person as he uh, talked about the Seattle Mariners for about 45 minutes. Um, and a video came out of, uh, of the whole damn thing last week. And boy, do I bet uh, Kevin Mather wishes that video did not come out. Um, because we say the word, we say the phrase saying the quiet part out loud a lot. And we kind of joke, you know, because uh, an owner might allude to collusion or something like that. This was Kevin Mather quite literally m- making the case against baseball ownership that we make on this podcast um, week in and week out. I- I- I'll just run down a list of, some- of a few things that he said, and we don't have time to dig it into every single one, but like no. there is there is so much here. Yeah, look, since, look out landing. With, look yeah. out landing, which is the
0: Mariners' SB Nation blog, and they do great work over there. Um, they have like literally like a minute by minute transcription of everything he said and all of the reasons that it's terrible.
1: He uh, let's see. So he called Kyle Seeger, their their third baseman and Mariners lifer player forever. Um, said called him probably overpaid and said uh, that this uh, will likely be his last year on the team. And to which uh, his wife, to which Kyle Seeger's wife responded on Twitter. Um, so should we put our house on the market then? Which, you know, fair question. It's a through, it's it's a through, line,
0: of, it's a through line of this whole story that all of the, the players and players, significant others responding on Twitter was
1: <laughs> <laughs> better than the actual story itself. Yes, exactly. Uh he claimed that uh that outfield prospect Julio Rodriguez um probably won't be called up for a couple years and that his uh his English not tremendous. Which, you know what? We we really hate to see that. Factually um, incorrect. He hosted yeah. a, a YouTube
0: series on the Mariners YouTube page in English, which is something that I couldn't do in a different language my right. langu- if my language if my you know, say if my Spanish was not very strong, I don't think I could host a video series in Spanish. I wonder how Kevin Mathers' Spanish is. Do you think it's tremendous? I'm going to say no. I don't know. We'll never find out, though, because he doesn't have a public platform anymore because his ass got
1: fired. <laughs> um, actually, the Mariners let him resign, which is, I think, a, a bullshit move. But, right. You know, yeah. Whatever. Um, he talked about the area around the Mariners' ballpark. And he said, I worry about the neighborhood. Uh, you know, we have employees that show up at 4.15 and leave at 10 o'clock at night. So I hire police to escort them to their cars as they check out and punch out. We got to do something about our neighborhood. No comment. No comment there. Kevin Matter uh, saw
0: the events of the last year and was like, we need to
1: hire more police. <laughs> Christ. Uh, he, uh, he insulted uh, Hisashi Iwakuma's uh, English as well. Uh, and and insulted his translator a a bit, basically said uh, that we're going to have to pay more money to to get you to have a translator. We're tired of paying for this translator. Um, And he says that, quote-unquote, when Iwakuma heard that, his English got a lot better all of a sudden, indicating that, suggesting that Mather thinks he was faking it, suggesting that Mather thinks that Hisashi Iwakuma is purposefully using a translator to like pull one over on the mariners yeah or, or or again like
0: tapping into the idea that struggling through something is the only way to get better which seems to be right. the only thing that baseball executives know is forcing other people to struggle through things um yeah i mean okay how many more things do you want to list off before we actually get into the meat of the conversation
1: because there's so many we could do this for 25 minutes oh yeah of course well the the last thing that i wanted to list off um which i think that we, we maybe wanted to have a slightly, slightly longer conversation about um, is his comments about Jared Kalenic. Uh, Bobby, I think you're familiar with that player. Um, yeah. 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 He said, quote, we weren't going to put them on the 40 man roster. We weren't going to start the service time clock. There were all sorts of reasons that if we had an injury problem or COVID outbreak, you might've seen my big tummy out there in left field you would not have seen our prospects playing in T-Mobile Park.
0: Yes. Okay, so I wanted to go a little longer on the service time manipulation element of it because it's kind of right in line with what we talk about a lot on this show where we're sort of like explaining these um, very specific labor concepts that we don't want to take for granted that people just don't either know about or care about. So before we do that, though, I want to say it's just despicable that – and it's very revealing that a guy like this has been running the Mariners for this long and has probably like inflicted a lot of harm and pain and struggle on a lot of his players. And it's just never got talked about because he never did it in a weirdly public forum with a bunch of season ticket holders. And it's, it's the reason that we have had conversations about, you know, players whose primary language is not English or players whose first language is not English coming over and and being expected to both be good at one of the world's hardest sports in the world's best league and also just be good at adapting to a clubhouse a culture and a country that is not very welcoming of them in most cases and also be good at learning the language so that you can even try to adapt it's just wild that we expect that and it's wild that it's not a two-way street that we don't expect coaches and managers and executives to learn Spanish first of all or to learn Japanese where or a myriad of other languages Korean where where baseball is played around the world there are way 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 more kids or just human beings who are playing baseball as their favorite primary sport right now who speak Spanish than English that's just a fact so there are other industries around the world where you're expected in in foreign countries, you're expected to learn English because that's the primary language of that industry. Or, you know, if you're a doctor, you might be expected to learn German or Spanish or whatever because you might come across people in the international industry that is medicine who that's their primary language and it's a useful skill for you to have. So if baseball executives are going to expect their players to learn English when they come here, perhaps they should expect themselves to also become fluent in all of those other languages where they want to recruit players from. Because let, let's lay it out on the table. It's fucking hard to learn another language, especially when you're being demanded to, you know, work 60 hours on your game every week. You know, you come home, you're tired, and you don't necessarily want to learn a language. And when you're being discouraged the way that Kevin Mather is discouraging these players, like, you might say, fuck them. Why should I learn it? You know? But I, the reason that I wanted to talk about Kalinick specifically was because this was the one element of his sort of 45 minute putting his foot in it rant where people were like yeah it's unfortunate that he said it in those terms but obviously they weren't going to call him up in 2020 right you saw like the generic twitter owner friendly fan base be like well why would the rest of the stuff was despicable and you couldn't you couldn't speak out against that but the service time clock part of it was sort of like more of a gray area for some fans. Where they're like, well, why would you call him up and start wasting his service time now? And, well, before I give my opinion on it, I want to turn it over to you and say, like, did you see people making that case and what did you think of it?
1: Um, maybe not so explicitly, although it, it wouldn't surprise me that that sentiment is out there. Um Right. And, and Kevin Mather... You know, for all of his, you know, for how much he showed his ass on this call was not straying far from the company line, was not straying far from a lot of what the general consensus among, you know, business-minded baseball heads think about how you should treat your young players. Um and and that's the thing that, like, you know, is maybe a little worrying to me about this or that is, that is more disappointing is that even when we kind of feel like the narrative has almost started to shift in favor of the players, a guy like Kevin Mather can still talk to, you know, fans, season ticket holders, other business people, whatever it is and feel okay saying this out loud, right? Feel very comfortable saying, yeah, straight up, we were going to manipulate a service time. That was always how it was going to work. Kevin Mather is is far from being an outlier in this scenario. Maybe he's a dumbass because he shouldn't have been saying these things out loud, but he is really just the best representation of how baseball ownership and, and the front offices of baseball think about players. Um, So that is the part that, that really kind of made my, my skin crawl is that is thinking that there are people like this in every single front office. And, and frankly, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that gives cover to, to fans, you know, who then kind of want to say, well, yeah, why, why wouldn't you manipulate the service time a little bit? Yeah. And Bradford wrote a
0: piece about that too. Bradford Davis at the New York Daily News, former multiple time guest of this podcast, he wrote a piece about how who's it's literally titled Who's Your Team's Kevin Mather? Because every this is the this is the stated position of Major League Baseball is that they can do whatever they want with these prospects and they don't have any other protection. It's at the total, complete control and whim of the team to call a player up whenever they want to. And that's how they're gonna operate. But you know, for all of these people, and maybe I'm reading Bob Nightingale's replies a little bit too much, but for all of these people who are saying, what has he done to deserve a big league roster spot? Or, you know, why didn't Kellinick sign the extension that the Mariners offered him? Because there's another element of this where it's theorized that the Mariners are punishing Kellinick by not calling him up because he wouldn't sign an extension to buy out his arbitration years. For a for ultimately what might turn out to be a team-friendly deal because Kellenic is going to be good. And they don't want to go to arbitration with him every year um, because it can get messy for all the reasons that we've talked about about arbitration in the last couple weeks. And, you know, for the example of someone like Chris Bryant where it got messy and now he has no fucking interest in staying there because they manipulated his service time and they screwed him over and they treated him like shit. And so, I don't see how, one, I don't see how this is any better by saying out loud on a call that you're basically manipulating a service time, but two, you can't manipulate service time. And what does that mean? Right? Like you can't intentionally keep a player down to gain years of control back. And you might be saying, well, what are you talking about? Like teams do this every year with every single big prospect in their farm system. The thing that you can't do is say that that's why you're doing it. You know, you have to have some sort of excuse that is verifiable proof that you're keeping them down for a reason. And the Mariners had an alibi. Like, Kellenick has never taken an A-B above double-A, despite the fact that he's probably the best outfielder that the Mariners have in their organization. Right now, he's that good as a prospect. Him and Julio Rodriguez. All due respect to Kyle Lewis, who, who, I mean, those three guys are the outfield of the future, right? And if you wanted to treat it like Tatis... You wanted to treat him like the Padres treated Tatis, how the Mets treated Pete Alonso. You might just call him up to start this year. Well, they basically said they're not doing that. And they didn't really give a good excuse as to why. And most teams give excuses as to why. They say Chris Bryant's working on his defense. They say, we just want to see a couple more at-bats in AAA just to make sure that he's got his eyes locked in to that major league level off-speed pitch. Or whatever bullshit excuse it might be. But what you can't do... And it says this in the CBA, what you can't do is intentionally intentionally keep them down in order for the express purpose of gaining a year of service time back or gaining two years of service time back. And that is what Chris Bryant grieved against the Cubs, which went to arbitration, and he lost. But he didn't have as clear cut of a case as Kellenic has. You have the CEO of your team saying we were keeping him down because we need to keep his service time. He said that phrase. So it's as clear cut as it possibly can
1: be. Right. Yeah. And yet Kelenic is in the unfortunate position of still being in the minor leagues, which affords him far less cover than a position that Chris Bryant was in. Right. Which is he's a major league player who is protected by the the Players Association and they are actually willing to throw the weight behind him. Yeah, whereas so minor has to wait. Li- right, Kalanick ha- has to wait, which sucks because that means potentially a year or two of lost wages, of potentially being exploited by your team. Not to mention just generally feeling like you kind of have this acrimonious relationship with your boss, right? who has actively said out loud that they are trying to squeeze as much value out of you without having to pay you for that. So, I mean, and and this is the kind of thing that I think will be really interesting to watch how it's addressed when the CBA expires at the end of the year, because this is like Perfect fodder for coming to the table and saying, you cannot fuck over minor leaguers like this anymore. Now, whether or not the Players Association actually decides to stick their neck out for minor leaguers is another question, right? Because so far, the the PA has largely sold out minor leaguers for the protection of its, you know, MLB's top stars. But as these cases get more and more egregious, it becomes harder to to say yeah we can't do anything for them right and you've seen play i mean josh donaldson came out and tweeted and basically said thank you kevin mather for giving us this ammunition right we're going to be using this this coming off season which is like good right file this one away as just one more piece of evidence that owners are actively trying to manipulate players and exploit these players. Um and
0: break the law. Like
1: break the you're violating
0: the agreement here. And the thing that I always get so worked up about when I hear people being like, you know, saying saying things like it would be a bad move organizationally to call up Kellenic early, or it would be malpractice because every other team is controlling their players to get extra service time and you're losing an advantage by calling him up early. Number one, maybe you create such a positive relationship with him that you sign him to a 14-year $340 million extension. Like, I don't know, for example, literally Fernando Tatis last week. Number two, just because it's easy to do the wrong thing doesn't mean you should do the wrong thing. And just because it's easy to get around these rules doesn't mean we shouldn't expect teams to actually follow the rules. That's the whole point of good faith and bad faith. And that's the whole reason you bring in independent arbitrators to determine whether or not they're actually in violation of the clause that's in the CBA, which leaves it up for interpretation to some extent. But let me say this, it's really hard to legislate around something like this because it's very hard unless the team puts a paper trail down saying we're leaving this guy down because of his service time, because otherwise you can't prove why they put him down. It's a very subjective reason to call someone up to the bigs. Because for all of the reasons that we've talked about, you know, because one person might have a different feeling about whether or not his defense is ready or whether or not he's mature enough or whether or not he's emotionally ready to see big league pitching and fail and struggle. Like all of those touchy feely reasons are like legitimate defenses that teams could use. But when they don't even bother, it just says so much about how empowered they feel to just be bad actors. And that is where we're at right now with Seattle. But they're not unique. They're they're not unique. Because this is happening all over with every single prospect. Like, think of your favorite prospect. Chances are he's going to get called up one to five days after they've got that year of service time back. It's at some point, like, I'm willing to call it causation, not just correlation. And that point passed a long, long time ago. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: But, But again, I mean, you know, I... Like Josh Donaldson, I would like to thank Kevin Mather for, for saying these things out loud because it validates the entire existence of this podcast. It's why, <laughs> it's why we keep on doing this, day in and day out. Okay, let's
0: go to our conversation with Ryan O'Hanlon um, about youth development in soccer versus baseball, which is a great conversation. I'm excited for you guys to all hear it. Uh, before we do that, Alex, we're going to be running a trailer from our friends over at Two Strike Noise. Uh, This is going to be something that we're going to be doing a little more on the feed over the next few months. You know, we've been talking to some other baseball podcasters, uh, baseball adjacent podcasters. And, you know, we just want to give listeners the opportunity to sort of find our show. So we're going to be running trailers on their shows and give listeners of this show an opportunity to find other shows if they are so interested. So if that's the type of thing that you're looking for more baseball podcasts, we hope you get a bit out of this trailer. And if not, um, listen anyway, because you know these people went through the trouble of making this great trailer so let's go to that and then to our conversation with Ryan.
3: The pace of the game of baseball lends itself to conversation and often debate. Who do you build a franchise around in the 1800s? King Kelly or the only Nolan? Was Babe Ruth the white Josh Gibson or Gibson the black Babe Ruth? Which 1980s pitcher attempt at rapping set the genre back further? Twins reliever Juan Berenguer's Latin-inspired, self-titled Juan Berenguer boogie? Or the Royals' Brett Saberhagen and his local Ford commercial, apparently written by somebody who's never heard rap that wasn't featured on a kids bop album these are the topics we tackle each week on two strike noise a baseball history podcast each episode, we embark on the deep dives on topics at the front of all baseball fans' minds. Who was the better pitcher? Cheer's beloved reliever, Sam Mayday Malone? Or Major League's Vaseline-covered veteran, Eddie Harris? Vip says Mayday, but Babbitt favors Harris. We also talk to former players, ranging from World Series MVPs, from the Yankees' heydays in the 60s, all the way through players who just recently retired with as many memes to their names as career home runs. If you like stale gum from packs of baseball cards, we've got you covered as well. Each week we open a different pack of junk wax to compare wars and those great 80s mustaches, except for Greg Maddox rookie stash on that 87 Donruss. That's just embarrassing. We are Two Strike Noise. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or on any of the other 4,200 podcast providers.
0: We are now joined by Ryan O'Hanlon, creator of the No Grass in the Clouds newsletter, a soccer newsletter, freelance writer, former coworker of mine at The Ringer. We're here in the beloved nickname, Ryan O'Headline. Ryan, welcome to Tipping Pitches. Great. Great to be reunited with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryan joins us today as someone who knows a lot about baseball, of course, because he edited a lot of baseball stories in his time at The Ringer um, and is also mainly focused on writing about soccer and his newsletter and on his podcast infinite football um but we wanted to talk to ryan because alex and i have been thinking a little bit during the off season what are some sort of off our normal beat conversations that we can have and one of those was about the youth development of different sports um and i think that baseball and soccer have very different youth development patterns mainly because baseball is developed in the united states and the united states is sort of an outlier among other countries and how they develop youth talent so ryan if you could just give us a bare summary sort of of how most of the rest of the world develops their youth talent. What would you say is like the baseline of how the biggest and best clubs in most countries around the world develop youth soccer players? So we can call them would, footballers if you would feel more comfortable with that. No, I don't know. I mean, what, we, what should be the, the, the no Soccer here? is
4: totally fine. I, I'm not a, i am not aii prefer soccer um, as opposed to football. I like to correct people when they say football okay, to great. make <laughs> them say soccer. Um, that's how I make a lot of friends. Um, so I think the best way to think about it, especially like for your guys' perspective, it's like, it's sort of as if like the minor league structure for baseball, but that extended all by age rather than like quality level all the way down to age seven, basically. Um, and so basically every club, like there's, you know, you know, you know, your Real Madrid's Barcelona's all of the big clubs, but basically every like, city or town within a certain size across Europe has a professional team at some level. And those professional teams all have youth teams to varying sort of built up degrees. Obviously, the bigger teams have more resources, more coaching, better coaching, more teams. But basically, you can think of it this way. Every club team in the world has a team basically from like I guess age 12 is sort of the first like official year 12 all the way through 21. And then above the 21s, it's, um, the full team. And what happens is, so you join a club at age 12, some clubs you join before, like certain clubs are scouting players at age five at this point. Um, which is really a really healthy thing. Um, and after each year, um, the club decides. So the club has, say for the U 12 team, they have 25 spots. Let's say at the end of each year, they decide who they're going to renew for the next year. And they sort of, I don't know, it depends on the club, but say they have 25 kids going to age 13, they'll cut 10 of them. They'll bring in 10 more kids because, you know, as you get older, you sort of have a more refined um, understanding of who might be the sort of elite players. Um, And then you, that sort of continues from there and there. And then once you hit around 18, you know, the best players at age 18 will get offered a professional contract by the club. And then you're making more money. You're a professional employee of the team and you're a part of the senior team. Um, And so basically every club has that structure, but every club has different incentives within that structure. If you're a small team in um, I don't know, Northeast England, let's say, your incentive basically is you're not, you're ultimately hoping to develop one player who becomes really good. Manchester United becomes interested in them, in him or her. Now Um, they offer you $5 million to acquire this player from you. And since you're a small club, $5 million means like you can fund your Academy for a decade while for Manchester United, $5 million means like, you know spilling a cup of coffee basically <laughs> so basically every club is acquiring players from a very young age and then they're bringing them up through the youth system with for the most part the goal is to sell them on for money and for some a very 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 small percentage of them you will develop them into players that play for your team um so that's really not cliff notes but that's No that was generalizing
1: yeah Wow. When we said unionize the minors, I don't think we literally meant unionize the minors, but it seems like that's maybe the (laughs) movement that that European soccer needs right now. Yeah. Well, so I I think, um, you know, there's this, there's this book that
4: I'm actually reading right now um, called national pastime. And it's about the sort of the parallel development of soccer and um, baseball and kind of why baseball sort of opted for a monopolistic structure where it's, you know, 30 teams, um, no promotion relegation and while why soccer sort of has an open structure basically across the world other than the U S. Um, and I think because of those things, like there's a bunch of positives and negatives for both, but because soccer is such a kind of like free market in like the most extreme sense player, um, the players union in soccer is so weak because players are moving from country to country um and there's not a kind of just refined like the players that play in the nba or in mlb it's a set population of players right that who get to be a part of the players union with soccer it's like how do you even define who gets to be in it um so yeah the the so they spend
0: the most of the time arguing about the terms rather than actually like the engage like that rather than actually how we're gonna dish it out between the like management and labor side yeah yeah if they even get that far
4: the union is just it's just really it's so weak compared to american sports um if you want to even consider american sports strong but i think that gives you a sense of yeah there's just very little the player power in soccer comes from like the handful of extremely famous players basically
1: yeah so how do because the the way that you explain it to to me as someone who is who has approximately zero knowledge of european soccer um Mm -hmm. it sounds like you these kids starting at maybe five years old have a full-time job that they just do for like until they get cut, you know, maybe they get cut yes. at twelve, get cut at sixteen. How does that? How does that balance w- work as far as like how involved their their family is if they have to. Um, you know, take on any financial commitment there? If there is education involved in it, or is it really just like your soccer is the only thing that you, that you focus on?
3: Yeah.
4: So I think here's where it's important to make a distinction between the way the U S works and the way Europe works. So basically you're playing for these teams, you get, uh, stipend at some of the clubs, it doesn't cost anything to play for the teams the tra- if you're on the team, the training is free, you're not paying anything for it. So you're getting really good coaching for nothing while in the U S all of the MLS teams have academies now, cause they're trying to compete with, um, European clubs, right. And MLS can make money from selling players to European clubs, but outside of MLS clubs, pretty much every other club that you play for. You know, it's the fees per year are somewhere between I don't know two and ten thousand dollars a year to play high level youth soccer, and that's you know probably the biggest reason why the U.S. sucks at soccer comparatively, like with (laughs) with the population.
0: That that's like a fee. That's not even like the personal cost that you associate with like the families traveling to watch and Mm -hmm. like paying food and everything. That's just like what the money, the check that they're cutting to the club that they're playing for.
4: Yeah exactly so there's you know there's so many stories especially in south america in particular of all of the great players come from or not all the great players but so many of them come from um poor backgrounds right and that's able to happen because you know it's not necessarily a positive thing but a club sees maradona this amazing kid at you know age 12 or whatever they see the potential of making a lot of money off of him. Right. So they do provide all of these services to Maradona. They do provide a pathway for him to get out of poverty in a way. Um, There's a lot of like other negatives that come from a sort of singular focus like that, but soccer definitely has way fewer um, bars that need to be cleared throughout the rest of the world than it does here.
0: Yeah. So that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask is basically like, basically why soccer has taken that path versus where here with most youth sports and I'll fold baseball in the same way that you characterize soccer in that you have to pay a lot of money for clubs. You have to pay a lot of money for equipment in baseball, too, which is another barrier that you have to clear. Um, but you kind of answered it a little bit, and I kind of understand that like the point is to find a diamond in the rough and then sell it for a lot more money so that you can continue your cycle forever and ever and ever and continue that cycle but i guess i want to know do you think that that sort of casts a wider net like do you think they find more people do you think more people have the opportunity to become good soccer players than have the opportunity to become good baseball players that actually get found
4: yeah yeah i I definitely think so i mean in some ways it's hard to it's hard to make a comparison right because like when we're talking about good baseball players. We're talking about players that are good enough to play in the major leagues. Right. And there's only 30 major league teams, um, professional soccer. There's five major leagues, all of which basically have 20 teams. So that's a hundred teams. Um, and soccer, there's way fewer, um, just fewer players get to play. Like there's not like, you're not, um, cycling in five goalkeepers, you know, throughout the week. Right. And you only have three subs. So like, in some sense there's more teams. So it's like harder to get a sense of what is good in soccer and what the comparative good would be in baseball because of the way that it's structured. But I do, I do think just from a financial perspective, it's just um, the bar it's way um, the net is being cast way wider in, which is good, but it's also negative. You know, there, there's so many stories of agents finding kids in Africa and convincing them, Hey, I can get you, you know a lot of a lot of times you'll they call it trials in europe but it's essentially a tryout right they a club will bring you in for a trial then they'll decide okay you're good enough you can be on our u17 team but there's so many stories of asians going to africa finding kids in these extremely poor villages and being like hey um i have connections in belgium like i'm gonna bring you over to europe and we're gonna like get you on a team And then they bring the kids over to Europe and then nothing happens. And then there's just this kid in Europe with no money and nowhere to go. Um, So like, there's all kinds of ways that the system gets completely exploited um, because of the same um, economic impulses that are maybe giving kids more opportunities.
1: Yeah. Well, that's definitely a dynamic that exists in, in baseball as well. Having, having kids come over from Latin America, um, there's that whole, there's a whole pipeline and it seems that regardless of it's, if it's European soccer or American baseball, there's a lack of it, It's like, once you have, once you have exhausted your time with us, like our transaction is over, we may have a, a really vested interest in caring for you or pretending like we care for you in these kind of development years. Um, Except for in minor league baseball where they don't have any
0: vested interest or money. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean,
1: what is what's interesting is, like, European soccer, the, the development model feels more, like, openly—I mean, you said it's, like, kind of free market to the extreme. Like, it is openly capitalistic and business-minded, but, like, very— upfront about that which i mm-hmm. i guess i almost respect even more than baseball who's very like craven about it and is like we're going to we're going to try and skim some off the top at the front end at the back end like anywhere we can whereas european soccer it seems like they understand that this is an investment you you need to make we understand the transaction that's going on here you want to play professional soccer we want to make a lot of money off of you let's both come to the table with that, with that mindset. Is that, am yeah. I correct in understanding that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think for a while it, there was sort
4: of maybe these more sort of romantic notions around youth academies. Um, and now it's kind of very sort of, it's just accepted. Like I, I'd recommend anyone who's like interested in this. There was a piece in the New York times magazine 10 years ago called how a star is made about um,
0: Iax. Great, great piece. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Whose Iax's. is, one of the great clubs in soccer history. And then this could be another episode you guys do with me in a year. Um, In (laughs) soccer, there used to be not be free agency up till like 1995. So like if your contract ran out, like the team could just like not pay you, but you also would, could not play for another team. Um, And then when that happened, it sort of created this like global elite that could afford to, pay free agents and iax fell by the wayside and they've had to focus on um just you know selling making great players and then selling them basically um and in the piece they you know they're sort of openly talking about there's a scene where they're scouting out five-year-olds and one of the scouts is so gleefully like this kid is doing things i've never seen before and like they're very clear about it and while we're talking about it it makes me like just a everything, you know, about like the Dodgers and the Astros, like if the Dodgers were able to just like acquire all the best five-year-olds in the world and have them under their like umbrella, they would absolutely do that. And they would also be cutting like the worst kids, like within a heartbeat, right? Like it just, it's, if the opportunity was there for baseball teams to do it more out in the open, like, it just seems like they would absolutely be doing the same thing. Right. Or am I overstepping?
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's oh God, a no, dyna- no. that's a dynamic that already exists. I think it's yeah. that's the key thing is out in the open, right? Because yeah. MLB has has a lot of rules, ostensibly, like with air, heavy air quotes around it, um, <laughs> around whether or not you can do that, right? Or at the very least, how public you can be with that sort of thing. But right,
0: like you, you have know, to they,
1: just be it to the Dominican Republic where that shit goes on all the time. Right, like yeah. the like the Braves have gotten caught up with this, the the Dodgers as as well are have been you know heavily invested. I mean, have literally done international crimes um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with regards to their <laughs> recruiting. So they're very familiar with that for sure. Yeah. Um, Ryan,
0: does so? Here's where I kind of draw the distinction between the U.S. and Europe, and why neither could ever go in either's direction is because it seems like high school sports and college sports are just not a thing in Europe, like they're, especially for soccer or in how they're developed here. Like are there high school and, and college teams that are serious? I mean, I'm sure there are like club teams for all of the people who just want to play with the lads, but like, are there very competitive versions of high school sports like we have here? Uh, no one that wants
4: to become a professional soccer player is going to be playing high school or college sports, um, or at least soccer. Um, they, I mean, that's even happening with the best U S players. Like I think at the next, um, next world cup, knock on wood, if the U S, uh, decides to qualify this time, um, it'll be almost no, it'll be very few players that have played in college. Um, and I, I think that that's, you know, it's interesting, right? Because like we do in America talk a ton about like, you know, it's stupid that, bit that, um, basketball players and NFL players have to go to college if they're good enough to just play play. Right. But in soccer, like they're, I don't know the, I don't have the exact figure, but like kids in English soccer academies, like, I think like 1% of them go on to just become professional soccer players at all, at any level. And like 0.01% become English premier league players. Um, And so there is like a big issue of like, so I didn't really answer this earlier, but like the kids essentially like over time, it's they sort of de-emphasize school, but still have some school and the bigger clubs will provide sort of some level of education to the kids as they become more and more serious. But what you basically get is like, you just get these kids that are suddenly turned 23. They've been in this like pressure cooker of playing soccer five days a week, basically from age 12 on and then they haven't really gotten educated they haven't really gotten to do other things where they figure out like what they actually want to do with their lives and then their soccer career is over either because they like physically, mentally can't handle it anymore or they got injured or the team decided they're not good enough and then it's just like okay now you're 23 you didn't actually make much money from what you were doing you haven't gone you to school just had you their had
0: your costs covered
4: exactly and now you're 23 and you don't even know like what you want to do so that that is like a very um real thing that happens to a lot of these kids that play in bigger academies i think
1: it's a it's interesting because in the minor leagues in the us like that process is very drawn out right like you know you will have guys who are 28 29 30 who have been kind of playing in the minor leagues their whole their whole lives essentially right and and again making very little money um and and are like somewhat able to carve a career out of that um and it's an interesting juxtaposition to this kind of european model that is very like cut and dried that says you're either gonna make it or you're not right like you're here for this kind of this one purpose and at any time we can decide that you're not good enough. Whereas in baseball, it's like you kind of rely on these career minor leaguers who know that maybe they're never going to make it, but you need someone to play second base for your, for your minor league team. Right. And I think that there's because you have this romanticization of, of baseball in the US, for example, you can get away with having, you know, paying a guy $20,000 a year to just, you know, play the national pastime because it's, that's what it's sold as, right? It's like, well, you're, you're living the kid's dream. Um, do you, does that similar kind of culture exist around soccer where, where you draw kids in by by being like, look, like this is everything you could have ever hoped for. Like you're you're paid in exposure, you're paid in in kind of the the beauty and the aura that that surrounds this game. Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, I think almost even more so with soccer. Like like I think baseball, I'm sure the sort of, you know, mealy mouth like sheen of the national pastime is something maybe you guys don't buy into, I imagine. Um, but with soccer, like it truly, like from the start, like part of the reason it never, part of the reason it never became a closed system is because there was always sort of some, um, some commitment to the idea of solidarity, um, any city, any town, any city could start a team. And like, it's true that like, especially You know, I think of soccer and the people, people's connection to soccer in the same way I think of people's connection to like their college football teams. Like that's the closest thing I can think of. Like the teams actually do serve like a communal societal benefit for most, um, you know, beyond like the biggest teams and even the biggest teams do, but even the smaller ones, like, you know, it's a small town, but you have a fourth tier professional soccer team um, and, you know, sometimes your players from that team uh, go go to play in the Premier League. Um, it's like a thing that everyone does.
0: And, and it does mean something. But um, at It'd the same like if time... Everyone gathered, gathered in bars to watch minor league teams play baseball. Yeah,
4: yeah, exactly. But also, like, if the minor league teams, like, theoretically one day knew that they could be playing in the major leagues. Like, the team itself could make, get up there if the right, right things happened. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is still used in the same way. But I think in some ways it is a little bit real in soccer. But then it like, you know, it never gets it always gets turned into another way of just making more money for people, basically.
0: So, so it seems like the NCAA is sort of a culprit here that we can point to as to why this could never happen in the United States, because there's too much money to be made off these collegiate athletes and the idea of student athlete and the idea of, you know, going to class, but also, like, you're this amazing athlete, and we just haven't been able to, for a myriad of reasons, if we could get into a whole 45-minute conversation about the NCAA and, you know, amateurism specifically, but for a myriad of reasons, have not been able to break through that idea as a culture, and it remains very powerful. I think, especially, like, outside of Twitter, where people are just like, yeah, college football fucking rules, and I never want these kids to get paid, because it might threaten other college sports, for because the universities are very selfish in that way.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Like lower tier English soccer is like college football. But if the kids were getting paid basically, Um, but like, it's not, it's not all kids. There are like, um, there are sort of older guys playing in the lower tiers, but then these teams are also, because of everything we're talking about, they're incentivized to like, play an 18-year-old instead of the 30-year-old because the 18-year-old has a transfer value theoretically where they could sell him while no one's going to buy a 30-year-old from a um, you know, fourth division team in England um,
1: if they know what they're doing, basically. I I get the sense that I mean when we when we had Rob Maine's on from from Baseball Prospectus a couple months ago we talked about the idea of rent seeking and how how Major League Baseball just loves to insert themselves into whatever business transaction they can to try and you know make ten percent off of off of whatever it is a stadium deal a real estate deal um, and it feels like that happens just to a larger degree with like youth baseball development where there are a lot of people who say, we want to like, even just for a year or two of this kid's life, like try and make a little money off of that, Mm -hmm. that development, right? You have corporations who have sprung up that, that exist solely, literally do not care about how the kids actually turns out development wise, but just say, Hey, we want to be a part of this for a a couple of years. Um, and it seems like that runs counter to that european model that is like very top down organized it's it's all through the the clubs um do you think that would work here
0: do you think that there are structural reasons that there can't be a yankees academy here
4: i think the one of the things that you just can't get past is that like part of this kind of development structure in soccer exists because the s- smaller teams ha- can reap financial benefit from gr- developing a great player. And there's, so like, if you train a player at age 12, 13, 14, and then he leaves your club because Manchester United has been like looking through the fence at your training sessions and they saw him and were like, okay, this kid, you know, whatever has something special. And then he signs with Manchester United. You do get a fee because you played a role in developing this player. And then if you have the player at a professional level, you get, and he transfers to another team in a different country, you get a part of the transfer fee. So there's sort of this like another to bring back solidarity. There's like the sort of quote unquote trickle down, but where the, you know, teams who played a role in this player's development get something from it. And that just doesn't exist because of the sort of cartelized nature of major league baseball, right. Where it's just, every team is trying to develop the best players. Um, So, I mean, I don't see why it couldn't exist in the U S because it would just be, it would just mean more power for major league baseball. Right. Right. And you'd just be taking the power away from the NCAA, um, which does seem to be losing power as time moves on. But I think with that, then it's more just like it's a completely cutthroat thing of the teams trying to develop the best players from themselves because the Dodgers, I mean, I guess the Dodgers could theoretically benefit from like developing players good enough to play for the Marlins, right? And then trading them to the Marlins or something. So there's something there, but because like, so Barcelona, you know, they're famously like developed Lionel Messi, right? And had a bunch of other great players who came through with Messi and like made the core of their great team. But like the percentage of soccer players in the world who are good enough to play for Barcelona, there's probably like f- maybe 50, I would say max that are good enough to play for them. Um, so like the players that Barcelona get their hands on to develop, like there's such, there's just such an inf- infinite, like, I'm just going to butcher that word. I just tried to say it again and stop myself. (laughs) It's just such a small percent chance that those kids would be good enough to play for the Dodgers or for Barcelona. But Barcelona could then sell the kid to, you know, a second division team in Spain and get $10 million or whatever from it. Well, that that little part of it, I don't think really exists, won't exist because of the way we do sports in the U.S.
0: So, So the Royals have this. Right, The Royals yeah. have a youth baseball academy. It's not so much geared towards like you're going to play for the Royals one day. Even though right. I'm sure that part of their reasoning in creating that is, hey, if there's a player who grows up in our backyard, we'd love to develop him here, create a relationship, and maybe it's it's different because there's the draft and there's all these other things. Yeah. Reasons why a kid might not play for the Royals that are built into the cartelized system that you're talking about that is Major League Baseball. Yeah. And there are rules that are that go against that. But you know, you might be able to sign them in free agency one day. But that, I don't think that's the primary reason that they do it. So I do wonder if there's a way to do this. And I don't trust Major League Baseball to be the group of corporations or the corporation itself that does this the right way. But if there is a better way to do this, where you're just like, oh, we exist in this city. So let's make this a symbiotic relationship where we can make fans out of kids and we can also help develop them as baseball players just because it's the, the right thing to do. And that can make yeah. baseball more accessible for a lot of people who don't have access to it right now.
4: Yeah. Well, and I, I think like we haven't really talked about this from like a pure, like, ha- like actually creating good athletes perspective. And like, to my mind, like because of all of these forces, like soccer is so much better at there's like, I'm saying the percentages of converting a player into a Barcelona level player is so low, but like, because these teams are incentivized to create players that they can then sell on for money they're so much better at developing athletes at a young age and they're, cause they're so focused on the individual players, right? The teams don't really give a shit about winning games from age basically seven through 21. Like for the most part, they don't care. They just want to develop the best players who can either play for their team um, or they can then sell on for money while in the U S it's, you know, it's like, you know, you pay for the best training and like every everyone is still so focused on winning games and going away to tournaments and all that stuff. That's maybe fine, right? That's maybe a healthy thing for kids to do, but it's not really the way to create the best athletes at, at that particular sport. So I think like, you know, if the Dodgers could control like a hundred kids in the way they were being developed from like age five, like they would absolutely be better baseball players in the future because of that. Um, so, you know, I think that it's a question of, can you find a middle ground between like, you know, chewing up and spitting out all of these kids and have lived and them having nothing left if they didn't make it in the Dodgers system. Um, maybe finding a middle ground to like developing athletes better, but also like still providing things for the kids in case baseball doesn't work out for them.
0: Yeah. Alex, do you trust the Dodgers? Number one, do you trust the Dodgers to do that? <laughs> Number two, what do you think the rap Soto would have said about you at like age nine? It's <laughs> a spin rate on that, that devastating changeup that we've heard yeah. so much about on this podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I necessarily uh trust the, the Dodgers to do I mean I already don't trust the Dodgers to do anything. Um so handling kids is um is probably a massive uh red flag for well, the Dodgers could just like be like like they
4: would Trevor Bauer I wouldn't have to do the Trevor Bauer uh, you know controlled development thing on its own. The Dodgers would just be like having a conveyor belt of Trevor Bowers like
0: coming out oh every year. God. Who doesn't God, want that? That's, <laughs> <wow>. nightmares. <laughs> Talk about a oh, headline he just titled the pod a conveyor belt of Trevor Bowers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh,
1: um I I wanted to to ask and and this is um, uh, less related to player development, but you you mentioned earlier um, Kind of the the importance of uh, local soccer clubs to their communities, and the fact that they are kind of so rooted in place, whereas minor league, I mean, teams obviously and major league teams are very um, I, I, they're regional, but they are feel they feel less tied down and rooted in their um, community. And, and something that we have talked about on this podcast before is the idea of ownership and whether, whether it's tenable for fans, for supporters of a, of a team to actually ha- have some sort of hand in the, the ownership of their team. And I know that that's, or I think I am about to ask you, that is something that exists in, um, European soccer where, Supporters actually maybe play a role in owning a team um, is that something that you have working knowledge about? Is that something that you see as like a tenable alternative model to like billionaires running teams solely for profit? I know that like the the fact or that government general you know or, or royal or governments families. too yeah. Yeah, but I I mean I understand that like the soccer ecosystem is like about like making millions of dollars off of people, which like I I understand. But there also is that element of like romanticism about the game and that that I think supporters are maybe less craven um in that way. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean I think like
4: soccer it's like a weird thing cuz soccer like I referenced earlier like baseball um when the like first outline of the major league was formed, it was like something like eight teams and it was only eight teams and you had like apply for membership basically to join. So from the start, they were like very focused on just like making a lot of money for the eight teams in that league while soccer, like never did that. And then over time, I think potentially partially because of the sort of open nature of soccer that enabled it to get so popular that now like the biggest teams are like, Oh shit. Like we need to like, sort of try to run this like a, you know, profit maximizing business at the same time. So soccer, like, it's like by accident basically become this massive global industry. So you still have like all of those connections that I was mentioning. In addition to the fact that like, You know, so like Manchester city is an example, this small, second biggest club in Manchester, like a relatively, you know, historic club in England that kind of was a a fine team um, in the sort of, uh, you know, postmodern part of um, history. And then um, the Abu Dhabi Royal family bought Manchester city. And now Manchester city is probably the best soccer team in the world. And like, so you have all these people that like grew up in Manchester and like for years rooted for like Manchester city as like the team, you know, the little train that could in the face of Manchester United, which, you know, Manchester United was on the yes network like 15 years ago, Manchester United is like the, the Yankees um, of sort of the commerce um, of soccer. And then all of a sudden those same people that have been, they're like fan interests and their like fan history have been shaped by like being the underdog team in a city now are owned by, uh you know, st- essentially a sovereign wealth fund that has trillions of dollars in it and their team is awesome. So they like now <laughs> root for it in that way. So like this there's is how all it feels these to
0: be a Mets fan now.
4: Yeah, exactly. Steve um, Cohen so, is my Saudi Royal family. <laughs> so like, I, I do think that soccer is unfortunately like if I like, soccer is moving more toward the American model, um, both in definitely in terms of ownership, you've never seen a soccer team relocate. Um, and they haven't used that, um, owners just haven't used that as like a cudgel to get money from a city. Um, you haven't seen that happen, but like, you know, in like 60 years, 80 years, like it's more likely that, um, more, Billionaires are owning soccer teams, and maybe like promotion and relegation doesn't exist in soccer anymore, then, like those same things <laughs> applying to American sports, I would say. Wish yeah. I could have been more hopeful with that answer,
1: but <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, fa- I mean, honestly, if a, if a, trillion-dollar Saudi family wants to buy the A's and make them good, I don't really know that I would argue with that. <laughs> I They can probably uh, put more money into it than I can as a single shareholder of the Oakland yeah. A's. Wow. Uh, yeah. Alex
0: willing to sell out right here, live on the podcast. Yeah, well, you like, heard
1: it here first. Uh, br- I'll
4: briefly say, like, Barcelona is th- theoretically owned by their members, and they vote on a president every couple years, and the president is essentially, like, the GM or whatever you, you want to call them um, or essentially operates as the owner. But like the only reason that like Barcelona isn't so rich and famous because of that structure necessarily, they were like one of the first big clubs and they kind of just built on that advantage. So therefore we happen to have one of the biggest clubs in the world is sort of owned by their members. But like that just was like a quirk of history rather than like, there's no way other clubs will other big operate. clubs will just operate
0: in the same way uh well so we've talked a lot I mean fan ownership aside because it's never happening in baseball let's just get, get that out of the way um I want to kind of bring it back to uh, the youth development and I want to ask you because we talked about perfect game we talked about you talked about the IX piece um, and how they like almost expressly call these kids commodities more or less like they barely know their names not not true but um they treat them this way. And that's essentially the same language that we chafe at in when, when MLB clubs trade minor leaguers for nothing or when a minor leaguer gets in this cycle of being traded every two days or whatever. It's never more clear than that, that they're just a commodity to these teams that can eventually create future value, which is something that we even scout for and which sounds like it's something that the entire European model is built on is future value. Um, do you think that it's better and you can interpret that question any way you want do you think it's more sustainable do you think it's any more or less equitable but do you think that that is a better model of youth development more efficient more inefficient anything that you want to interpret as that do you, would you say you look at one model and you say that's how the other sport should be doing it i mean in terms of like the best way to develop
4: athletes like soccer's model is so much more efficient um it's like not even close um for kind of all, all the things I said earlier, whether it's like a better model in terms of like the public good of the model existing. um, It's tough to say because there are just so many kids that just get like churned up and spit out, um, which sucks. But I guess that it's not like that doesn't happen in American sports either um, for various reasons, injuries, same, same reasons, I guess, I guess maybe fewer, there are just fewer examples of it happening. Cause like, it's a smaller pool of athletes basically. So, I mean, I, I think like, I don't know. I, I think the soccer model is like these smaller teams do like, I think a lot of the fans have like sort of even accepted that like they now take pride in like, one of their players going on to play for like a big team. There's this kid Jude Bellingham who um is 17 and he plays for Borussia Dortmund, but he played for Birmingham City before that. Um Borussia Dortmund's a big club in Germany. And I think that Birmingham City like already retired his jersey and he's like 17 or 18 now. So like him playing for Borussia Dortmund, it's like they get something out of that, you know. I mean, I think they'd rather have Jude Bellingham playing for Birmingham City forever but like that's just not the reality. So like the fans have sort of bought into the reality of the situation. Um so I guess I I think the best thing would be somewhere in between. Um like not a total laser focus on soccer but also like a much more much more folk I think it's probably a good thing to be more focused on the individual at a young age than the collective. Um and then as you become a professional team where your focus is winning, then that all comes together. So I guess somewhere in between, but more towards the soccer model is what I would say is better.
1: Yeah. Well, I like the idea that um, they actually care for them. Uh, that runs uh, in counter to everything that baseball uh, feels about its youth development pipeline, <laughs> <laughs> um, which largely says, um, You want to come play for us? Okay, you're going to have to pay the money, and then we're going to make you work for it for years, and then yeah. ultimately just make millions of dollars off of you. Yeah. yeah. I so mean, soccer's kids get an education.
4: <laughs> well, soccer's definitely better in the perspective of like, at least the kids aren't paying to, for the right to play for Manchester United. You know what I mean? Right. They're yeah. getting all of the things, um, yeah, paid for. So that that is absolutely much better than whatever happens in American sports.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. If, <laughs> I don't think the perfect game is going away anytime soon. Or pay for play seems to be the model here. But uh, it doesn't mean that we can't complain about it. it. Doesn't mean that we can't say that we hate it. Uh Ryan O'Hanlon. Thank you so much for joining us here. Uh do you want to let people know where they can read your wonderful writing or listen to you podcasting?
4: Yeah, just uh check out nograssintheclouds.substack.com and the newsletters there, you can get the podcast there and anything else I write for other places will be mentioned in the newsletter, so it's, it's sort of a nice tidy little package if you just go
0: to that link. Amazing. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks guys. All right, thank you to Ryan O'Hanlon. If you're a soccer fan, can't recommend enough that you check out his writing. One of the smartest soccer writers out there. Great guy. Uh you know, going out on his own in the Substack. He was like one of the original Substacks. Pre-Glenn Greenwald.
1: Yeah, Ryan I, O'Hanlon made it hot. Oh, I I heard uh Ryan O'Hanlon uh reading off his Substacks in a basement actually. This is like probably 09. Yeah, um dude. Yeah, dude. It was was only me and a handful of other people in the room. Yeah, exactly. This was before he went to a major record label. Right, exactly.
0: We have also yet to go big time on you listeners, which is why we still take your calls every week and we respond to them. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple calls, a couple voicemails before we get out of here. We know it's pretty late in the podcast, so we're only going to do two calls this week. We have a bunch more backed up that we're going to put off to future weeks. So if you did call, do not be discouraged you will see that your voicemail will be played on the podcast in the coming weeks. Thank you to everyone who has called in, by the way. People still continue to call in. And uh, it seems like there's a plethora of reasons to be mad at baseball owners these days. Yeah. Alex. Uh, and Which means we'll y- still get to do the pod every week.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, keep giving us those reasons, though, as always. 785-422-5881. Hit yep. that line. That's the number. Great, great the number. brand recognition.
0: Every single time I want to say 578, it's not 578, it's 785-422-5881. Five, <laughs> two, two. Okay, here is a voicemail about the New York Yankees.
2: Hello, Alex and Bobby. Uh, my name's Henry. Uh, thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, I wanted to lead off with the fact that I am a, a lifelong Yankees fan um, and kind of give my credentials because people find themselves sort of reflectively annoyed by Yankees fans, which is often understandable. Um, my my dad is from Long Island and he spent the entirety of my life sharing his you know loving memories of his Yankee youth with me, which included being in person for Mickey Mantle's 500th home run. Um, I got a Derek Jeter ball uh, as my favorite bar mitzvah gift from my family. All of this is to say that Yankees joy is a humongous part of my life. Um, but uh, another humongous part of that that sort of detracted from the joy was when I was a younger kid after they sort of had their huge run of. World Series championships. All of my like elementary classmates would sort of dump on me because the Yankees quote bought all of their talent. Um, and this is this is not uh, necessarily a complaining about my owner thing, as it were, as the owner in question is now dead. But I wanted to contend that George Steinbrenner was in fact a labor relations icon because specifically he loved paying people with talent uh, for their talent to provide a wonderful winning experience for his very demanding fans. Uh, so there you have it. George Steinbrenner, the dearly departed labor relations icon. Um, I will leave you with um, go Yanks, uh, kids don't parrot uh, stupid things your humorless big L lib parents say in bad faith. Um, all power to the people and the players and Gary Sanchez is good, actually. Okay. Thanks, guys.
1: Bye. Wow, ended on such a strong note. There, we co- got to really
2: covered
0: it all.
1: I mean, yeah, we got to end all of our podcasts with that from now on.
0: Gary Sanchez is good, actually. Or parents don't parrot Big L.
1: <laughs> lib don't don't, things don't that your parents parrot don't? your your parent. You're right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, okay. He put it better than us. Yeah, he did. Um, thank you, Henry. Yeah, really. Thank this you, Henry.
0: Uh, labor relations icon George Steinbrenner, Alex. What's uh? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say that phrase?
1: Where is the lie? Exactly. I mean,
0: exactly. Uh, at, by today's standards, it seem, he seems like a labor relations icon. I, you know, I haven't read every George Steinbrenner biography. I'm sure there have been many instances where he tried to rip players out of money, or where he tried to pay minor leaguers very little amount of money or whether he tried to break the union or any number of things that George Steinbrenner did that are reprehensible by tipping pitches standards but by like Paul Dolan standards I mean George Steinbrenner does sort of seem like a labor icon we've talked about this a little bit in all seriousness with you know with Bauman when we've done our uh, state of labor and baseball podcast is that every once in a while you get sort of like brainwashed into thinking are the Yankees good because they're actually willing to spend big on free agents and sign big players and I think we can hold a couple of different ideas in our head here and that's like the phrase of the year or the phrase of the last two years that the Yankees can be villains and they can be enemies and you know they can be like the big sort of evil empire of baseball and also like they can be doing right by their players and, and right by their fans um, and I think that's the case you know I do find it funny whenever Yankees fans feel the need to like caveat why they're Yankees fans. I mean, if you're from New York and you're a Yankees fan, it's like good for you, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, they are objectively the most popular, like globally popular baseball team. So like you could very easily get away with saying I'm a Yankees fan. Fuck you. Um, but, like, we've had the, the anti-Yankees sentiment has been so strong over the last, like, two decades that there's now a growing number of people who say, I'm a Yankees fan, but not that kind of Yankees fan. Yeah, you know? but, like,
0: I mean it. I mean it. You know, <laughs> like, it's passed down to me. Not all Yankees fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe we should do an episode on just George Steinbrenner. That that would actually be a
1: fascinating exercise, yeah. We could go an hour into um, how he uh, was literally convicted of illegal campaign contributions to Richard Nixon. Let's do that. What would we have been saying at the time? Because, wow, can you imagine
0: doing this podcast while Richard Nixon was president? (laughs) I think we would have really peaked during the
1: Reagan years. Yeah, you think we would have been big war on crime guys you know
0: yeah i think so and then clinton would have rolled around and we would have been like this is way more reasonable
1: yeah i mean you know bring it back kevin mather said bring that war on crime back make the seattle neighborhood safer (laughs) i was like where are you going with (laughs) it
0: um uh okay thank you for calling henry
1: yeah, I just I just want to say I we have we have toyed with this idea before is is he a laborer relation icon, right? I think that like we have gotten to the point where we've almost come full circle where we're like, yes. And I, I, I love the energy that is brought to that argument. Yeah. I don't know if I land in the same place there, but um but like I get it, you know? Yeah. Henry, DM us separately.
0: Either on Twitter or tipping underscore pitches or email us tipping at gmail dot com. I want to know what part of Long Island you're from because I have a theory <laughs> about I have a theory about Yankees Mets separation between what town on Long Island you're from. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It could be proven wrong by you. So we'll 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 chat offline. Uh, should we go to our next voicemail, Alex?
2: Yeah. Hey guys, I'm calling in. Uh, I'm a Cubs fan. You know, I know. I'm a Cubs fan, and I hate the Rickets and I. Well, I hate most of the rest of the Cubs fans, to be honest. They're really just a bunch of bros. But the real problem is the Ricketts, obviously. I just the the whole. I don't even know where to begin. What's what is the, is there anything that that the Ricketts can do to salvage, or can we can we salvage from the Ricketts? And is there is there a team worth watching here left if we somehow get a new owner who you know, can put together something. Is there something here in this, you know, core that looked to be good in 2016 that just, you know, isn't.
1: First off, um, thank you for calling in. Uh, I, th- this caller did not did not say their name, um, but, you know, I respect the desire for anonymity. Um, back-to-back callers that felt the need to qualify their fandom, you know, in in different ways you know like interesting that we have uh the yankees fan who um kind of has the whole spiel of i'm a yankees fan but here's why um and our and our dear friend here who's a cubs fan was just like yeah i know i get it don't 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 hold it against me
0: yeah well i've been railing against the cubs for a while here and that I- I guess I'll just take this opportunity to say I have nothing against Cubs fans. It's not their yeah. fault. I think that, you know, they have some very legitimate gripes because of the Ricketts. Um, main question here. Is there anything that you can take away to salvage this from the Rickets? Here's what I'll say. You won the fucking World Series. <laughs> The Cubs still have good players. Like, they're not a bad baseball team. They won their division last year. You know, Ian Happ's a good baseball player. Javi Baez, I have no idea what he's going to look like in 2021, but I find it hard to believe that he's just legitimately bad at baseball now. That's not to say that they're going to keep him or anything like that, but they still have Chris, Chris Bryant still on the roster. You know, they haven't traded him away yet. Um, so, there are some things to take away. Number one thing to take away is, uh, as Cubs fans know, flags
1: fly forever. Fly the W. I don't know, I'm True. just saying. I'm just saying. You're just they're just <laughs> saying baseball, baseball things, yeah. Um there is a I don't know if you know this, but I have a a picture of myself with Tom Ricketts. Um
3: wow. prior
1: prior it was an A's Cubs game um at Wrigley Field and we were walking over and who should be getting out of his car but Tom Tom Ricketts. Oh my god. And, and so You are so
0: cancelled from this podcast. You took a picture I, with
1: Tom Ricketts. I know, right? Yeah, so there is a picture out there of me um circulating somewhere, you know, circulating around the annals of release the Ricketts or cut. Something you know? something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um There's no end to that story. Like that's just kind of (laughs) is that I have a I have a picture with him, Um, but I can confirm that he does look just as slimy in person. So that's you know that's a takeaway. Uh, I don't think dumb people are running the Cubs.
0: Like I think they've made dumb decisions at the behest of the Ricketts, which is alarming. You know the despair that you should feel is because the Ricketts own the team and it looks like they're never going to sell the team. But number one, you never know. Number two, they have money. You know, like they they spent a little bit, they spent a lot in 2016 and a little bit to keep the team around in 2017 and, you know, to get guys like Darvish and everything that gave him a big contract. Now they backed out of it halfway through, but like they have money. They're a very sustainable franchise. They're a classic franchise with a great fan base that's always going to show up for them. So it's always going to feel good when they're good. That's something that you can take away from that. And... I don't think Jed Hoyer is dumb. Just like I didn't think Theo Epstein is dumb. I thought they get way too much credit and I didn't think that they got enough blame for like the last 5 years, but you know, pretty much most baseball owners are detestable and the Ricketts have shown to be one of the most detestable ownership groups, but also despite all of that, they've had success under this this ownership group. So you know that it's possible to repeat again. And you know that they have the ability to develop these players. That's something that you can look at another franchise like the Rockies or you can look at another franchise like the Pirates who are doing a little better recently and you can take some solace in that. You'll never be like that, that bad.
1: Right. Like your your team owner might be like destined for the depths of hell, but like at <laughs> least they got a lot of money and they're putting it towards the baseball team sometimes.
0: Yeah, when they're not putting it towards gentrifying the north side of <laughs> right. Chicago. Right. I mean, I
1: mean that's what I was gonna say. Is like any the any silver lining in this is like that any one of their investments like fails, you know, and you kind of get to experience the Schadenfreude of seeing them lose copious amounts of money. the 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 tough part about that is that it would obviously then impact like hundreds or thousands of actual like real people, you know? Yeah. yeah. So so I mean it's it's the whole concept of, you know, when business is good, rich people don't share in the profits. But when business is bad, rich people love to share the losses. Um yeah. so if the rickets fail, you know damn well that a lot of other people are gonna fail too. And that's gonna that's gonna be quite unfortunate. So I think we just continue to um publicly shame them it's about the
0: best we can do um you know we can call in 785-422-5881 and we can we can yell about them but other than that we don't have a ton of leverage uh i'll just say you know enjoy the cubs enjoy going to games great place to see a ball game great place to tune in for a day game on tv looks beautiful and the team the team's always gonna be there, you know? They lot they didn't win a World Series for over a hundred years and they never left, they never moved. It's right back, same spot every year. So you have that to look forward to.
1: Yeah. I mean, take solace in the fact that at least you uh to this this caller and, and Bobby, you as well, will never uh will never look like Ted Cruz, but you took him out of the oven too early. And Tom Ricketts can't say that. So Okay, that does
0: it for this week's tipping pitches. Thank you for that beautiful uh, picture that you just painted, Alex. You're uh, I'd be remiss if we ended this podcast without again officially inviting uh, one Senator Bernie Sanders on the podcast. Bernie, for listening this late in the show, I'm surprised that you haven't answered our email yet. Uh, but that's okay. You know, you're a busy, busy guy. Come on on the pod. We're calling 785-422-5881. Uh, any other things to
1: leave the people with, Alex? If you know where I can get my hands on some Slam Corp stock. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let me know. It's not on Robinhood as of yet. I might have to like talk to Chuck or something like that. That's yep, that's Charles Schwab. That's pieces. that would be yeah, for those for our financial listener. I or for Ross talk to Ross. Yes. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Right. Thank you for listening to this week's tipping pitches. Uh, If you like it, please share it with someone. Please subscribe if this is your first time listening. And we will see you next Monday.
2: Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya!